welcome to Campfire Football. This is episode 74, the end of the Euros. Well, what a month it's been. Copa America also concluded. Um, Leo Messi getting his first title, so that's really, really exciting. But the Euros are over. Wimbledon final happened. Djokovic, Novak Djokovic, got to congratulate him for getting his 20th Grand Slam. That's a major, major thing. Dustin Poirier for beating Conor McGregor, another massive sports moment of the weekend. But look, it was a hell of a weekend, but the way it ended with the Euros was incredible. I'm Campfire Football, so I'll stick to what I truly know. Football, just to keep going. The Gold Cup also started yesterday, something to keep in mind. The Olympics are coming in 10 days, so there's no breaks, which is fine by me. Let's keep the story going. I want to do one thing first. Small tribute to Paul Mariner, uh, excellent England international. He was on ESPN FC. Uh, over the last few years, we saw him a lot come on the show, and he was always just probably the most jovial character that you would see on there. Uh, I think Dan Thomas is a little bit of a wind-up merchant all the time, actually. And so for anyone who watches this show, they did a great tribute to Paul Mariner. Rest in peace, Paul. We'll definitely miss you, and uh, I, I just – miss having someone like that on that program and he just brought so much life to it so it was a really sad moment brought me to tears and that was not long after I watched Leo Messi be able to finally say in your face to everybody who was like you haven't won anything at the international level now he can add Copa America to his Olympic title which I count and that under 20 World Cup title which he won which by the way was the first time I ever saw Leo Messi I was in New York City at an ex-girlfriend's house, and I remember there was this game on, and I was watching it. And this kid, little left-footed player, goes and scores an absolute dime of a goal. Just top bins, left-footed curler. I was like, oh, he's really good. And then it was like immediately, it, it was just tumbling on. Um, you know, I think I'd already seen him at Barcelona. We'd known about the talent. But then I saw him do that in that tournament. He won, and I was like, wow, like Leo Messi's – He's going to be a special, special player. Argentina are going to love having him for all these World Cups. And then in the end, it takes all the way to now for him to get a Copa America. One thing I want to mention, something that I heard that was really interesting is not Pele, not Maradona won the Copa America for their teams. I'm not 100% sure if that's true. I probably should have double-checked on it. But either way, the whole point is Leo Messi gets his title and cements his place really in the history books where he belongs. It was kind of a wild game. Um, apparently, he was at like 60% and played the whole 90 minutes just to make absolutely certain he was on the pitch for everything. Uh, but he was not very good, actually. Not very good at all. He barely touched the ball in the first half. Missed a huge chance late on that was, okay, not easy to take. But by his standards, should have easily been a goal. You could just see how knackered he was at the end. Even the last play of the game where they have a, a, a set piece on the ground, they can just dump it into the corner and just get everyone upfield and try and make it like that. Instead, they pass it to Messi, who demands it, and he immediately turns it over, and then the final whistle blows. He hits his knees. Players, all the staff and players come and celebrate with him there. It was kind of amazing watching that end to the Copa America, just seeing just how distraught the Brazilian players were as well. And, I mean, look, amazing team effort by Argentina. Lionel Scaloni deserves a lot of credit for what he's done in building this real togetherness in this Argentina team. And that is a theme that we will continue to see throughout, that I'll go through throughout this episode. Um, 
Di Maria's goal was fine. It was an absolutely terrific finish, but the mistake by Renan Lodi, give me a break. Man of the match to me, Neymar. Look, some people may not respect Neymar, but in a game like that, which, by the way, was an all-out war. That was not really a football match. That was a war. 40 fouls, something like that, nine red, nine yellow cards. It was just, it was brutal. I mean, Neymar had his shorts torn. There was a player who had a bloody ankle, someone who had a torn sock. It was just, it was mental. And Neymar was, I think, outstanding. I don't know if he was used in the most, in the best way tactically. I don't know if maybe he, when he was doing some of his hero ball, he maybe could have been a little bit just attracting less attention. But he was getting Argentinian players booked left, right, and center because they had to stop him. And the final 10 minutes were absurd. I mean, people jumping on his back and stuff. And when a player is that good and he doesn't fight anybody, I mean, he was getting up from bad tackles and literally shaking the guy's hand who tackled him when the guy came and apologized. I mean, like, I know Neymar gets a really bad rap for being petulant and stuff, but I'm going to give credit where it's due. In that game, I think he showed real leadership. And now we can just move on from this idea that Messi isn't the one who's won a title. Now, it's got to be Neymar who wins a title because even though Brazil won the Copa America uh, last time out, he wasn't part of the squad. He was injured. And I think a lot of people were saying, well, this Brazil team without Neymar, this may be the reason why they've won the Copa America because they just look like a more solid together unit. And so that's where the conversation is going to go. But... In only 16 months, these two teams look very much like capability of going have the capabilities to go and actually win the World Cup in Qatar. And believe me, Latin American teams do really, really well outside of Europe. It's the European teams that tend to struggle outside of Europe in the World Cup. There's an amazing history behind that in terms of stats. But, okay, let's move on to the Euros because they're now wrapped up. I didn't do an episode for the semifinals because they kind of just came and went so quickly. And... In the end, I, I was just waiting for this to, to, to wind down. I planned a little um, sort of outro exit tribute to the tournament that I wanted to do, and so we'll finish with that. But congrats to Italy. What an amazing international tournament record they have now. Four World Cups, uh, twice runner-up, six finals. Euros, that's two titles now, twice runner-up. So 10 finals in total. I mean, that's a lot. That's a really deep you know, international tradition of winning and playing well. They're on a 34-game unbeaten run still. It's incredible. They started the tournament the form team. They ended at the form team. So, look, the, the, to me, that puts them top of the pile, right? Um, are they the most talented group? No, but the way we saw them go through this tournament, on any day they can beat anybody, and they can outclass a lot of opposition along the way as well. So, not a great final. Um, I, I think it was decent. Uh, the game started perfectly, right? I mean, all you needed was this this early England goal to get things going. And I think it was well refereed by Bjorn Kuypers as well. That's that's one thing I'll say. But it's because he, he was able to allow the game to really build in intensity. And it was Italy that just kept bringing the intensity. Once the first 20 minutes, half hour, whatever it is that England were in charge – once you saw Italy edge their way back into the game and halftime came along, I felt, okay, England have to go out in the second half and do the same thing that they started the game with because that's what was working. The worst thing you can do in situations like these is drop as deep as you do. Now, I have a very clear memory of England in Euro 2004 taking the lead against Portugal through Michael Owen goal, and they basically started to sit in after that. And it was like... 
a wave was coming and Portugal were going to score. And then it was survive to get into extra time. And then in extra time, well, you know, you try, maybe it's cagey, maybe get a chance, maybe don't. In the end, you go to penalties and you lose. And this this was, there was more to talk about with that and we'll get to that. But I have to say Federico Chiesa, for me, absolute star. Would I say he's man of the match? Maybe. I mean, he was really the biggest threat for Italy pretty much until he came off the field. But it was Leo Bonucci and Giorgio Chiellini that, for me, really, really stood up in this game in every single manner. And I don't just mean because of the goal and the, the basic stuff, but it, it is really the leadership and showing what collective unity really means. And I think that was the reason Italy were able to get over the line and actually not just get over the line, but tune out the crowd and, and go and start taking the game to England. I mentioned that France got themselves knocked out by taking a lead and just dropping off and inviting pressure. It does not work. It didn't work for England. It doesn't work. It didn't work for France. It doesn't work. You have to go and take the game to teams because in in competitions like this, especially in games and finals like this, big players step up and end up making a difference. Uh, I, I have to say... Chiesa, the, the run that he had in the first half where he made Declan Wright look completely ridiculous was amazing. It was it was so much fun. Unfortunate to see him get injured late in the game. Uh, other mentions, I want to say Pickford. Um, incredible performance from him, especially the save on the Jorginho penalty. But all the saves he had throughout were, were really, really good. To me, one thing that was really fascinating about England's tactical setup here is how on earth do you let Jorginho continuously get the ball? You saw what Spain did in the semifinal. The blueprint was there. Do not let him get on the ball. Do not let him get possession. Do everything you can to force them to go around him and nullify him. Can you just mark Verratti 1v1? I mean, Verratti's still good, but when the entire idea is that Jorginho's the metronome and Verratti's with him and you take out the metronome, it, it, it really messes up their game plan. England did not do this at all. I, I just don't understand why. I think Mason Mount would have been your ideal person. Stay on Jorginho. You know everything about him. Just don't let him get the ball. And then as soon as we get it, launch attacks. Because that's what, that's what I think where Mason Mount could have been better in this game. But then we look at everything else. I mean, goodness, the bench that this team has and how long it took for Southgate to make changes. You know, there... There was a lot that, that became less and less uh, easy to understand, right? Um, I will say this. I don't think Jorginho should have got a red card for the tackle on Grealish. I can see how England fans would say that's a red card or anyone would say that's a red card. If the ref had shown a red, I wouldn't have really had too much of a problem with it. But I would have been like, this is, this is going to flame up some problems because the guy's studs aren't in the air. He's coming down and he comes down on the ball. Meanwhile, Grealish is sliding in from far away. I mean, when you put yourself on the ground, you are putting yourself at risk as well. It's a 50-50, one player lunge, one player slides. Yeah. So in the end, I didn't really like Grealish's uh, salmon flopping to try and make sure that the ref understood. And Jorginho, I think, probably knew he was in a little bit of trouble, but got clipped, so he made sure he stayed down. It was a mess. It was weird. But I will... Go ahead for a second and mention Southgate substitutions because I don't. Those are the things that didn't didn't make sense to me. You have all these excellent players, attacking players, and you don't bring them on at the start of extra time when you've been running out of gas. Like the, I mean, to survive the ninety minutes without conceding was actually really really big for England. They needed a little bit of a change, 
and something to go at Italy, just something to make the defense turn around, get Rashford on the field and start lobbing balls over, maybe anything to try and change it up. Instead, you wait until literally the last kick of the game to bring on Sancho and Rashford. They come on on a corner kick because the substitution took so long. Okay, maybe they were going to get five minutes, but that's not enough. It's just not enough. And Bukayo Saka apparently has never taken a penalty at the professional level, and that's the first one he does. Where was Raheem Sterling in all this? I mean, you know, why is Jordan Henderson not left on the field to take a penalty? Harry Maguire's was the best one, completely demolishes the camera. That was really cool to see. But I just, this to me, it didn't really make any sense. I understand that Gareth Southgate chose the takers. And let's be clear, in the post-match press conference, he said, the penalties, that's on me. That was my decision. So for anybody who is currently saying, why didn't Raheem Sterling go go and say, I want to take one? Why didn't Raheem Sterling volunteer? No, it sounds like they took penalties all week in training, and Southgate said, here's the lineup, here are the people, here's what we're going to do if we get into that situation. So stop blaming the players. What I will say, if you want to blame the players, very simple. Let's just stick to how you take a proper penalty. In this tournament, what we have seen almost routinely, is that if you take a weird run-up to the ball, something that doesn't look really rehearsed that well, it looks like you're stalling, and maybe Marcus Rashford, for instance, starts literally as if he's about to shoot with his left foot and does this big, wide turn, kind of like Neymar. But, like, what, what is this? In the end, you hit the post. Okay, I mean, you almost scored. Saka, way too short of a run-up. Uh, and, I, you know, just the penalties that weren't good. Belotti's, he barely hit the ball. So this is what I want to get to is it's not just your run-up. That matters. It's not just trying to be too clever. Don't do that. It's The thing that's most important is hit the ball hard and in the corner. Here is why. Goalkeepers are not allowed to leave their line the way they used to be able to. So a lot of the stutter step and all that stuff came from goalies coming out early. And you could read that. But now they're just not allowed to. They have to stay on the line until he shoot, which gives them no time to get to the corners. None. Unless they're Unai Simone going left, right, and, and around and, and trying to, you know, get you to second guess going to the side you want to go. Whatever. But, I mean, you have to hit the ball hard. Everyone who hit the ball hard pretty much scored unless they wildly missed the target. But there weren't even that many of those in this tournament. I think goalkeepers made a lot of saves from genuinely poor penalties and Gigi Donnarumma bravo bravo you've shown that the hype was always real I was not so sure I was always like yeah I mean he's good young AC Milan goalkeeper yeah cool but what I want to know is is this guy really going to be the guy that delivers at the top level or is he just kind of a golden child that has a really powerful agent and, and and backstory and like I think now we really got to see him he was excellent and uh, Jordan Pickford, got to give him a shout-out for his save. I, I said I mentioned that already, but Jorginho, if you wait for him to take his penalty and you go the correct direction where he shoots and you're able to react quick enough, you have a really good chance of saving it because when you hop the way Jorginho does, it's very difficult to generate a lot of power on your shot, which I just said is massively important for penalties. <laughs> if... You wait until he lands his hop and and you haven't jumped yet. He's going to try and go for a corner. 
And this is why Pickford made the save because he was able to get over quick enough. So, you know, that, that I think was really, really important. But here we go. Italy win the competition. Forza Italia. I'm not really Italian. I'm actually more English. But I do love this kit. This is, this is one of my favorite ones. And um, I'm wearing it because, you know what? Congratulations. Congratulations to Italy, the champions of Euro 2020. 2021 very uh very much worthy winners um you know it was always going to be a team that was going to be positive optimistic and a group that is together and that plays on the front foot that we're going to win Italy being that and they passed every test in front of them they passed the the Belgium test which we really really were surprised about I think I, I certainly was and to beat England at Wembley in a final with a team that by the way isn't loaded with a bunch of stars and talent and everything I mean, Spinazzola was an amazing revelation in this tournament. But overall, th th this has been a really fun Euro. England, I just want to say, Southgate has done great work to keep this group together and to create that kind of ethos. Now, Southgate's got to step up his game as a manager for the next World Cup. He's got to learn from this and improve. But England, don't be, don't be sad. A lot of teams lose at home and then go and win again later. Portugal lost Euro 2004 at home in absolutely horrible manner. I mean, they get all the way to the final. They've lost to Greece in the first game. They managed to get all the way to the final, and they lose to Greece again. Uh, horrible for the Portuguese, right? This was Ronaldo's very first tournament. And then finally, in Euro 2016, he gets to the semis, gets to the final, gets injured, and they win it against France in France. A lot of people are like, oh, no, you're at home. You know, last time we were at home, we won the competition. And then, you know, that team won again. But then we haven't won anything since. So people were worried. And then you have to think about the fact that it's a short time. It's just around the corner. And a word of caution for Italy. It's very hard to follow this kind of thing up. It is not easy at all to win a tournament and then go and win another. Most teams fail. And it's because it's really difficult to keep that sense of togetherness. If Chiellini's gone, if Bonucci's gone, which I don't, I doubt Bonucci will be, but if Chiellini's gone, who are going to be the major leaders? Who's going to be the glue that keeps this together? Mancini's done an amazing job, but he can't do it alone. And other teams are going to get stronger and come back. So the reality is if these two teams can keep what they've had this tournament, which is that togetherness, they'll be genuine contenders for the World Cup next year. And just like that, the Euros end. That's it. It's over. One football fiesta month behind us. But it was amazing. We're all better because of having watched this, basically. That's the way I see it. I adored it. Congratulations to Italy, the winners. Mancini, I think, manager of the tournament. Very fitting. But it was the, the return of fans that made everything so much better. You think back on this past 18 months and... Now that we have fans back in grounds and we got to see it on full display at the international scene, just seeing them interact with players, players celebrating with them, it was everything we've wanted for so long. Congratulations to CR7, Cristiano Ronaldo, for winning the Golden Boot and surpassing international goals records that he's been chasing. He also edged out the hugely impressive Patrick Schick for this Golden Boot just because of assists, who goal of the tournament, Patrick. Well done. There were a lot of honorable mentions for that. Paul Pogba's banger against the Swiss. Andre Yarmolenko, who 
held the goal of the tournament title for about 24 hours after his curler against Holland. Thorgan Hazard's slice, Irfan Kavecchi's filth and finish, Lorenzo Insigne pulling out an Insigne special on the big stage. Luka Modric doing exactly the same thing with his unbelievable Trevella. Manuel Locatelli, beautiful left-footed shot from outside the box. And hey, don't forget about Jerdan Shakiri, who does it every single time. Other beautiful goals from in and around the box. Karim Benzema's double against the Swiss, the Belgian double against Denmark with Kevin De Bruyne involved. Morata's volley, Lewandowski's curler, Ramsey's winner against Turkey. A goal not many people talk about is Stefan Leiner's amazing leaping volley. There were so many. And goals are one of the major first things to stoke memories. But we also had to deal with Denmark's road. And Christian Eriksen, cardiac arrest, the horrifying images of his teammates having to form a barrier around him, of Simon Kier having to do immediate support to try and keep his teammate alive, of then going over and staying with his partner and helping her. Casper Hulman, the coach, who 10 years ago, one of his players at Midgetland got killed by a lightning strike. This man stood up as an inspirational leader for his players. All the tributes throughout the tournament that kept reminding us how important life is and that football can help bind us together. And then their revival, just incredible. That game against Russia, that goal that Christensen scored, the absolute rocket, just an amazing thing. The emergence of Mikhail Damsgaard, Kasper Dolberg's retribution, Kasper Schmeichel, almost following the footsteps of his father. It was a really beautiful story, the Danish story, and their exit hurt in a way, because we're all rooting for them. But it left binding us together, and that's what football really is all about. I think back on some of the other memories of the tournament that really caught me. The Italians belting out their national anthem in every game, but the first game especially, upstaging that weird virtual U2 concert. Goran Pandev, 38 years old, scoring North Macedonia's first goal at a major tournament. The Coke, the Heineken, and water bottle saga that was started by CR7, and then followed through all the way to Granite Xhaka, downing a Coke in the middle of the circle before the penalties of the France game. Manic Monday, Mad Monday, whatever you want to call it. France versus Switzerland, Croatia versus Spain, 14 goals in just two games, and two of the best of the tournament. With that freakish own goal by Unai Simon, Morata having his moment, the Swiss dominating, the French resurging, and then collapsing. Amazing. Giorgio Chiellini. As the end neared, he always was smirking and smiling and enjoying himself with opponents clowning around with Jordi Alba before the shootout. Showing just how much fun it can be when you have that much passion. The Hungarian fans creating probably the most raucous environment of the entire competition. And the way that the players stood and sang the national anthem to them after that. The Allianz Arena pride colors controversy and the kid who ran on the pitch and got tackled. Polson getting a beer shower in the corner when the when he scores his second goal against Russia. Look, there's so many. And the key is everything is about what you remember. And it's about the moments that you had 
either by yourself watching or with your friends watching. But more than anything, this tournament was the reminder of how beautiful football is as a binding agent for all of us. Thank you to the Euros. Thank you to the players. This is Campfire Football. Most of all, thank you, football.